we talked last week about the idea of Osa commits a Kazra Mikasa. And it's an idea that we learned, um, we spent some time actually seeing where it derives from the Gemara and the Sukkah. Um, that one who is involved in the mitzvah is exempt from a mitzvah, meaning another mitzvah, right? So you're busy doing one mitzvah, and another mitzvah opportunity comes your way. You're exempt from that mitzvah, and that second mitzvah comes your way. And we saw in the Gemara and the and this is learned out by the Gemara actually from two sources, even though the Gemara is generally uncomfortable with having two sources, they, they make it work this time. The first source is actually from a verse that might be familiar to from the Shema, Right, that you should um, you should be involved in learning Torah and specifically in the recitation of Shema. Basically, the verse means all the time, right? When you say Shema, it's about loving God all the time, learning Torah all the time, and being obligated in these things all the time. Um, but the the Gemara learns out from this verse that it's only when you are you're only obligated when you're doing your own thing. Right, the the called the ending of the word, right? The suffix of the word um, means that it's yours. So when you are going on your way, when you are sitting in your house, like when you're doing your own thing, then this obligation to recite Shema kicks in. But if you were doing not your own thing, the opposite of your own thing being God's thing, right? If you were doing something that's mitzvah, a mitzvah purpose, then you wouldn't be obligated. The obligation um, wouldn't, wouldn't kick in somehow you wouldn't have to recite Shema. That's one source of the Gemara. Where is it from? The other is Gemara. Uh, the other is, a, is the Pasuk um, that says that basically that Pesach Shani, there were people who couldn't offer Pesach sacrifice the first time around. They were they were Kneim. They had dealt with a dead body. Um, and the Gemara says, yeah, so like, weren't they planning ahead? Right? Like, didn't they know Pesach is coming? We all know when Pesach is coming. So they should have thought better of it and said, oh, we can't deal with the dead body right now because the Pesach sacrifice is like, Coming up, that's a complete mitzvah. Nope, you do you do the mitzvah that comes to hand first, whatever the consequences for mitzvah number two. So those are the two sources, and they're different in terms of the right one is about planning ahead, the other is about now when the mitzvah actually um, is on you when you actually have to do it, and um, and that that's what that's um, that's what those two sources come to teach you. But they both relate to this rule for tomorrow. Both they mitzvah pasuk mitzvah. Now there's a few things that we have to unpack about this. Um, number one, again, I'll just go over this briefly. It's a really weird rule. Um, I feel like people sometimes have very strong reactions um, to this rule. There was a woman in class last week who said she couldn't come this week, but she definitely had like strong reactions for a few reasons, right? Because first of all, um, if you are like me, a multitasker, right? So mitzvah means you're going to do just one mitzvah, and the other mitzvah you're not going to do. Why not? Isn't the other mitzvah important to you? Yeah, you can't do anything. Yeah. But you can, <laughs> but you won't, right? It's, it's a little weird, it's a little strange because, you know, I think it's a very, even though it's that mitzvah, I think it's a very resonant feeling for most people. You're doing one thing, but you feel pulled to do another thing also or instead, right? There's like a real, not like oh, I'm doing this one important thing and I feel like it's other things I should be doing, but this one's important. Right? That's like the easy kind of choice. That's, that's pretty simple. This is like you're doing something important, and there's something else that feels just as important, almost as important, maybe more important, and I feel like I should be doing that other thing. But okay, so the mitzvah is like, no, 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 stay with this thing. So it's a strange rule in a way, it's a hard rule in a way. Um, and arguably, it speaks to a certain understanding of the 
relationship to Mukot. So we looked a little bit at the Mishonim, and at the early interpreters of the text. Early, they were a range of, uh, of dates. Um, so I'll, I'll take you on a little walk in memory lane if you were here. For example, Tosfot looks at this and says, uh, okay, if you can't do both at once, that's kind of what you were thinking. If you can't do both at once, what's your name? Rifty. Rifty, right? If you can't do both at once, then, okay, fine. But if you could do both at once, then you should. So that's what gives the example of, have you ever heard of someone who's wearing Titi and says, oh, oh, so I can't do anything else if I'm wearing Titi. That's like a little funny, right? Because like, it doesn't take up too much mental energy, physical energy, et cetera, to wear Titi on one's garment. That should not be a big deal. So it's just as if you can do both at once, you should. We saw the Rambam, who talks about the inability to choose between two positive mitzvot, which is like a larger conversation in some ways for another time. The Rambam is very interesting. The Rambam says you can prioritize between mitzvot low that negative mitzvot, meaning the don't do's, right, come with punishment. So there you could say, okay, this punishment is worse than this punishment, so this sin is worse than that sin. Okay, fine. But it's really hard to say. We don't know the reward for mitzvot. We don't know, like, this one gets you 10 mitzvot points, that one gets you 20 mitzvot points, and it doesn't really work that way. Um, so you really can't prioritize, and so this rule is here to help you out. Rambam might also say you could do them effortlessly at once, and you should, but Rambam's focus is really on why this idea is a good idea. Um, yeah? Where does it say this, though? So this comes from the Gemara and Sophia. Judith who I did give a copy of the first week. Yes. <laughs> I have the Gemara and Sophia in both Hebrew and English. Um, the Gemara learns it out. I mean, it, it really comes, the Mishnah says that those who are on their way to do a mitzvah are exempt from the mitzvah of Sophia. Right, so you have a mitzvah to sit in a sukkah, eat in a sukkah, etc. during sukkot. But you are exempt from that. It's like nowadays they make, um, I think, by like, what? Yeah, travel sukkot, right? I th- I've never seen one in real life, but I imagine mm-hmm. them like, kind of like, like a tent, but like, pop right? <laughs> so like, why didn't the Gemara just think of that, right? But the Gemara goes a different way with it. The Gemara says, no, 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 you do not need to purchase yourself a pop-up sukkah, because actually, if you're busy with one mitzvah purpose, you're exempt from the second mitzvah purpose in this case, Sukkot, um, which is interesting. Um, we also saw the position of the Ran. The Ran is like a little more forgiving than Tosot. So the Ran says, you should, this, this rule is good, but if you can do two without effort, then you should. But this rule means that you don't have to expend effort to do the second one. So if you're like in that moment where you're like, oh my goodness, like I'm doing Mitzvah A, like if I, I could work really hard and do Mitzvah B, but like it's gonna be hard, it's gonna be, and I actually think it's interesting, right? When I read the run, I've always thought of it as being just sort of spiritually difficult. So it's like hard, right? Like you're not here over there. On this one. You have so much concentration, and you do it yeah. again. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm really focused on this one. So how could I possibly sort of tear away my attention and do the other? I think it could also be mean physically difficult. Like you're you're over here doing this mitzvah. So how can you like turn over here and do this? Right. The run, I think, could encompass both brings up the question, I'll give you a teaser for next time, but it brings up the question of concentration, focus on Kavana, which we're going to talk about, we're going to focus on that issue next time, um, sort of like the bane of the existence of multitaskers, right, the idea that you might actually need to focus on just one thing at a time. Um, and we also show the Orzarua, who I think is in some ways like the, the funniest or like the most interesting position. The Orzarua says, it can't be that this rule, like, just stated the way it is, it's like way too obvious for the Gemara to try to teach us something like that. Because you just can't do two things at once. Like, has your mother ever told you that you can't do two things 
wants, right? So it can't be that that's what the Gemara is trying to teach us. Rather, it's saying, no, 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 even though you can do both, the opposite of transfer, even though you could do both at once, you shouldn't do both at once. Oh, that means no. You did this one thing, I don't care, that's nice that you're like the best multitasker in the world and you can do five other things at the same time. Nope, gotta stick with what you're doing. All of this raises the question uh, how these how these and how these opinions are sort of relating to this code in general. We talked about different options, right? Because if you think of your to-do list, and I asked you a little bit about your own to-do list for this week. Um, if you think of your to-do list as having 613 separate items on it, right, which is what your to-do list would look like if you only put this code on it, there's a lot of things to do. And it may be that your, your task, your goal in life, is to check off as many of those as possible. But that's one way of seeing it. Another way, maybe more consistent in some ways with the potential mitzvah, is you have one item, one mitzvah item on your to-do list, which is do mitzvah, or maybe even serve God. To be involved in what the uh, Quran called Malachat Hamakom, Malachat Shemayim, be involved in the work of heaven. If that's the one thing on your to do list, then at the point at which you're Osek the Mitzvah, you're involved in the Mitzvah, so you're Pachem in the Mitzvah because you're like doing that one thing on your to do list already, you've got it covered, and you don't need to stop and do another thing. So it's interesting to think about it when we talked last time about the different approaches to Mitzvah this represents. Today I want to talk about kind of the next level that you know, already, like I said, came up last time. This rule makes people uncomfortable sometimes. First of all, from this multitasking perspective, like, let me add it. Like, I could do more than one, right? So why would you not let me? But beyond that, I think that, um, I think that this rule raises the question of setting priorities. Because this rule basically says, I can always easily set priorities, because the mitzvah that I'm doing right now is priority number one. Anything else falls to a lower level of priority. If you follow this rule to, you know, to the letter, that's basically what it's telling you. But I think that sort of instinctively, and again, this did come up a little bit last time, you might already have ideas about how to set priorities within this code. You might already know about sort of operational rules within Ha'acha, within Jewish law, that tell us a little bit about what you do first or what's more important or what to prioritize. So I want to first ask you if you Think of any of these principles of how you how you rank this book or how you prioritize this book. What do you know about how to do that already within the Halakha system? Mm-hmm. Things like sometimes like the major the major ones you know like think of Shabbat or okay Shabbat. how do you decide the major? Um, like well it's definitely stated in um, in Spanish. Okay. Um, so we're just switching off between 
English in the group. Um, and Giovanna? Any rabbinic mitzvah that we want to draw up here? A wedding ceremony? A wedding ceremony? <laughs> That's interesting, like the specific outlines of the wedding ceremony. Yeah. Uh, okay. I guess a lot of like rough oak would fall into that category. Insert blessing. Okay, great. So the right to about is a big one. Because if I just asked you, right, again, that's this rule, like, which is more important? Like, which should take precedence? Which should be prioritized? You would probably tell me why. There, right. Right? That's like just an easy way that we have prioritizing. You can also see it in terms of you know, when if something has to go, right? We usually we usually like offload the Durabana first, right? Like if you need to break Shabbat for some reason, after that someone's sick, not in the life threatening sense, in the life threatening sense, everything goes. Which by the way maybe isn't as well. Um but uh, you might say, well, you know, we'll break a Durabana before we break a Durabana. Okay. What other rules do you have for prioritizing this code? That's interesting. Then and then the same in Okay. So, custom versus law. Because we prioritize law over custom. Okay. I like it. What else? Just coming to mind with the wedding um, example is sort of like the amount of time that like an event will occur. Right. I don't know if that's like raising the category. Like if something happens all the time, this is something that happens. Sure. I'll give you a word for it. Um, is really um, about the frequency with which you do the mitzvah. So that's like so okay, tadir is good. I'm gonna call it something else in this context, which is mitzvah over. Right? Because you could have something, right, tadir, let's say candle lighting, right? Candle lighting is tadir. But it's also mitzvah out there, right? Because if you miss it, you miss it, right? It'll come back again next week. That's true, right? But it's still um, it's still mitzvah out there because you only have until whatever you know, plug in your 18 minutes here, right, to uh, to light those candles. So mitzvah um, out there. I'll just say versus not, you know. And so a mitzvah over is something that, um, like the opportunity will pass. Right? That's what this word means. The opportunity for it is going to go away. So um, candle lighting was another example of mitzvah over. It's only going to be obligatory for a little while, and it's going to go away again. What? Sukkot. Sukkot. Sukkot's a great example because it's our most relevant example in terms of source material. It's sukkot and mitzvah over. Right here, right now, you're obligated to mitzvah, right? And then once sukkot ends. Away, you're not going to need it again for a whole year, it's not really relevant for a while. So you might think mitzvah over is kind of more important, more that book that feels more urgent, because that opportunity is going to pass you by, uh, as opposed to something which you could do anytime, which you know you could tap back into at any point. Any other rules for prioritizing mitzvah? Yeah, that's <laughs> um, 
I'll do that on the list even though even though I'm not sure. I feel like that would just be a way of like distinguishing. And I'll call that Bing and then Javiro versus Adalmaco. So that is those we have a whole class just about which one you have. Right? But I agree that it might be that one or the other feels more urgent in that moment. And I think you could come up with examples. I know we talked about it in another context. You could come up with examples where postgim Halakhic dissenters have said that one or the other is more urgent. I think especially this category, the Ben Adam Kaviros, feels like it has more urgency because it, you see its ramifications right there and then. Or any other ways of prioritizing folks? Yeah? You mentioned people are Spanish. Yes. So I, I don't know when it would be posted, there. but there is a certain urgency that allows you to violate Chibata or especially. Yeah. So, Tikkun Nefesh. Right? Uh, Life-threatening. Life threatening, or maybe I should also say, in the sense of like the mitzvah, life saving. Right? If someone says to you that you have the opportunity to do a mitzvah that's going to save a life, are you going to say to them, I'm busy, you know, giving another mitzvah, I'm busy dominating right now, right? I'm busy dominating right now, so I can't stop and do you would all instinctively have moved around you and they're probably helping you know, right? That you're going to do that thing, which is life-saving, you're going to allow that to take precedence over something that's not. Great. Any other rules that people want to throw out here? Would, would geography, would this photo take place here, it's probably greater than just a different that's interesting. So, like Israel versus not. Um, well, I would put I'll put this in two ways. I'll say Israel versus not, with Israel being arguably more important, and I'll say like maybe also geographically convenient versus not. This comes up. I would say actually both of these dichotomies come up a lot in terms of zakah. If you guys have ever learned the rules of giving charity in depth, so there's, I won't even, I'll just say there's a lot to discuss in terms of how you prioritize between giving money within America and giving money to Israel, and giving money to um, your own sort of like internal circles, right? The phrase on the air would mean that you have to take care of those in your own community first, right? And then maybe only then you spend outside. Great, I like that one too. Um, right? Maybe maybe that ties to the question of effort also. You'd always have to expend not always not in terms of doing charity, but you might have to expend more effort to do something that's farther away. Okay. Any other rules that we want to throw out here? I'm pretty happy with this list. Right? And what this list tells me, right, the fact that you guys were able to so easily generate this list, one, two, three, four, five, six ideas or concepts, and it tells me that you know, like already had the idea that this idea, this concept, was if it was a central man, so I try to avoid calling your rule. Rules are going to be broken. That um, this is not going to sort of be able to just stand as it. It's not going to be able to kind of exist on its own, in a vacuum, untouched. We're not always going to be able to say, oh, it's a central man, 
which means we have to figure out a couple things. One is, okay, so then what does this idea do for me? If I can't apply it across the board, how is it helping me in my life? Right. Well, it's not formulated. That's a larger question that'll take us a while to fully unpack that, if at all. And the other question is, how are we going to apply this rule? If we're not going to apply it totally across the board, we have to test it against some of these ideas. Um, and that's what I want us to do in this class, is sort of test it against, um, not, we won't necessarily talk about all of them, but we'll talk about, right, something like this with a larger conversation. Arguably, the realm of touches on it a little bit. Um, custom versus law, also a larger conversation, but I think it was going to touch on it, but it's functioning mainly in the context of law. Um, but we will talk about, um, and a couple of other issues that tie into this question of how actually to apply this rule, having established that we're not going to feel comfortable just applying it across the board. It's not going to work with the halakhic system that we know and love. Um, so take a look at the sources that I gave you, which I think you all have now. Um, oh, sorry. Go on. Um, so, and again, my email address is on here, so if you're missing any of the other materials, you're welcome to be in touch, or if you have any other questions. Um, so, the first issue to look at is whether Osef Mitzvah applies to rabbinic mitzvah. In other words, if you're busy with a mitzvah Jeravana, okay, that's the mitzvah, that's mitzvah A, that's the one that you're doing right here right now. Are we going to say you're actually exempt from mitzvah B? In the case where mitzvah B is a direct mitzvah. So, wedding ceremonies, blessings, Maybe prayer, because the, the idea of praying three times a day is probably a rabbinic, uh, in the rabbinic law. Um, you're involved in something that's rabbinic in nature. Can we really say that you don't have to stop for something that's direct? So the source that I brought you here is the Arachanair, or Yaakov Atzinger, um, 18th, 19th century Germany. Um, and he wrote a commentary on on the Gemara. I think, by the way, uh, if, you're, if you are someone who learns Gemara, and you're someone who learns Gemara with commentaries, um, and you're someone who learns Gemara with Rishonin, early commentaries, I highly recommend checking out the Echorin, and who are the much later commentaries. I think they often address the questions, address even more interesting questions in some ways, or talk about them in a way that's sort of more resonant. Um, so that's my plug for the Aruch um, And we'll look at it. This is, again, about this is commenting on that Gemara that I taught last time that talks about the rule of Osek uh, So does someone want to read this in the language of your choice? Great, go for it. In the Gemara, share the person is preoccupied with mitzvah preoccupation. According to the conclusion, we require both with regard to one who is involved with the mitzvah being exactly the that the person be actually involved in a mitzvah or preoccupied and that it also be a mitzvah and then that person is exempt from another mitzvah. Okay, so just to summarize there, we talked about this a little bit last time, but the Arachonero wants to make sure you understand that anyway his understanding of this rule, Osek Mitzvah Pachemim Mitzvah, is that you have to be really involved in the mitzvah such that there is what's called tiered in the mitzvah which I translated here as mitzvah preoccupation. So sometimes it might be better translated as sort of burdened, but in the mental sense. Right? Like you're you're actually mentally involved in doing that mitzvah. 
So it needs to be a mitzvah, not just anything that is mentally preoccupying you, which could be some things. Uh, and it needs to be actually some kind of, you know, mental burden on you. Okay, keep going. Uh, hence, I am unsure as to whether one who is involved or preoccupied with a rabbinic mitzvah, if in any this way that person is exempt from the Torah level of mitzvah. Can we say that since this person is only occupied with the rabbinic mitzvah, that this is not this is not a reason to exempt from the Torah level mitzvah? Or do we say that since the rabbinic mitzvah contains an element of lotasur, one should not deviate, this is also considered like being involved with the Torah level of mitzvah? This still requires further investigation. Okay, so let's work backwards here for a second. Right? His question is clear, I hope. His question is the one that I posed earlier. Does Osaka Mitzvah, Pesachimina Mitzvah, actually apply to rabbinic mitzvah? If you're involved in a rabbinic mitzvah, can you really not stop to do a mitzvah there right now? What's his bottom line answer? What does he end with? Still asking the question? Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to sort of start with that point. Yeah. Right? At the end of the day, the Oracle is not so sure. Which is just interesting. I think it's like fun to note when they go back and forth for a while. Um, but at the end of the day, they're not so sure. That's where the Oracle loses. He says, sorry, it requires further study because it's just not so clear. Now let's talk about what makes him unsure. He has kind of a, uh, you know, he presents both sides of the argument. Uh, so what would be the reason to say that the rule, that you're not exempt from the Torah level mitzvah? He doesn't really elaborate on that, but he just sort of assumes. Why would you think you're not exempt from uh, the Torah mitzvah if you're doing the Torah mitzvah? Like a reason sort of because it's like a Rabbana mitzvah and the mitzvah that you would be doing is a Torah. Yeah, right. Kind of just our, our previous assumption, right? This person does, this would win. That's his baseline assumption. However, he gives an argument why maybe why maybe you would be exempt, right? Why maybe the rule would apply. What's his argument for why the rule would apply? But being involved in the mitzvah, you're involved in the term level. You're involved in the term level by doing the Yeah. This is I feel like often an out when you're talking about Zerabana Mitzvah. The reason to keep Mitzvah Zerabana learn from a verse, low test or that you should not deviate it's interpreted right from that which the Chachamim say. So there's like a Deoraita core, we call it, right? There's a seed of Deoraita, there's a seed of Torah level in every rabbinic mitzvah. So you could say, all right, they're not really, even though we, we treat them differently, we talk about them differently, the bottom line at the end of the day, they're not really so different. And so maybe it does work to say that a Deoraita mitzvah makes you exempt from Deoraita. But at the end of the day, the Arachonair is not so sure. At the end of the day, we really don't treat them differently. We only treat them differently when we have basically a lot of questions. The, the weak, regular people, we're actually taught not to treat them differently. And it only comes when people are doing socks and things like that. That's not a word. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that's I mean, we're not supposed to sit there and say to ourselves, oh, this is the right, this is the Rabbanan, it's only the Rabbanan, if any, any rabbi will right. tell you, you have to treat it, yeah. you have to do them all, so to speak. I, I agree with you, but I, I think that, um, I think that doesn't preclude the question, because I would say it's this way. I think you're right. They're right to Rabbanan, like, as we go through our day doing these so, we're not supposed to ask the question, and probably we really don't ask the question, too much, like, is it Zerai, is it Zerai, like, we don't distinguish between the two, it kind of goes back to what the Rambam was saying, or we don't 
play that game with mitzvah. We're not really supposed to play that game with mitzvah. On the other hand, when this does kick in, this distinction does kick in when you're asking hard questions in hard situations. And if you ask me, that could represent a hard situation. I'm doing this right now. Maybe I'm even asking you for a stack, right? I'm doing this. Should I stop and do this other thing? Right? I think it does represent potentially one of those test cases. And what the Earl Mary is saying is maybe this principle shouldn't be operative because maybe when push comes to shove, right? Only when push comes to shove, we really need to prioritize their rights. Or maybe it really is all the same thing, right? Even in that difficult situation, there's a core of their rights in every direction. But I want to think through a little bit more because he's, he's, um, he's building off the Gemara in Sukkah, which I know not all of you saw, um, but based on the idea, right, even just based on the way the rule is formulated, right, what would you think? Does this apply to Zerah and Zerah equally, or does this apply to only to Zerah and uh, only yeah, to Zerah and not to Zerah? Okay. Why? Um, well, just because I'm a higher priority general. Okay, but in terms of the way the rule is formulated. I'm not sure. The rule is sort of like, gives you very little detail, right? You're not sure because the rule really gives you very little detail. Uh, and in fact, in the course of the Gemara, there's not very much to talk about it, but the examples that are given um, sort of run the gap. There's not a clear sense from the Gemara. The Gemara actually talks about weddings. The Gemara talks about sitting in the sukkah. The Gemara talks about reciting Shema. The Gemara talks about praying. The Gemara talks about all these things. Um, and one could argue that since the Gemara doesn't specify, you have to say that there are rights that are It's sort of all the same here. And there are those who make that argument. Um, you can see in source number two, um, just Maimonides, again, not directly relating to this question, um, but again, this sort of broad formulation that makes you think that you're not going to be able to distinguish their rights or their rights. Rambam says, Misha Hayali both Harud Mitzvah, If you are, your heart is burdened and hurried, you're like stressed out with mitzvah related stress, or you're, maybe that's too strong, but it, that's kind of what it seems like to me, right? You're really involved in this mitzvah. Um, so you're exempt from all mitzvot and from the recitation of Shah. Doesn't sound to me here like Rambam would distinguish between the six mitzvot. We'll have to talk more about Rambam in the last class when we talk about learning Torah. Um, but at least from here it sounds like it's across the board. It sounds like it would be across the board and it sounds like um, you, should, you should apply the rule equally. If you want to know bottom line halakha, which um, some people are sort of pushing me on um, last time, I'll say basically the same thing as the Aral Khmer. I'll say Sarafi, it requires further study. You can go ask your local um, whomever, um, because there really are opinions on both sides of the issue. And I think it, it goes back to this basic tension. On the one hand, oh, if you want to touch your so we don't distinguish between these folks, we don't play that game with these folks, it's dangerous, as you mentioned, right, to play that game with these folks. On the other hand, we clearly do sometimes which comes to show prioritize their rights over your um, and there are different, uh, there are just definitely different opinions here. Um, I think I saw a small piece of an essay by Avakhanan Wasserman, a more modern POSAC, uh, arguing strongly that you should, you should say um, that a Zerabanan, uh, that you would, you would not apply this rule. If the mitzvah you were occupied 
in the Darabanan, you would push it aside for Darabaita because you can't apply this rule so strongly across the board. On the other hand, there are folks who can make the argument from the language of the Ram that I mentioned earlier. Anyone who is involved in anyone who is involved in God's work, <coughs> I think is the way that I would translate that, right? Anyone who's involved in God's work is exempt from the mitzvah, and you would not want to say that the Darabanan doesn't fall into the category of God's work. And that's what other folks would argue. So it's a split. Um, but again, it's an interesting split um, because if you don't apply it in the case of the Darabanan, you have to say, well, that's a real limit to this rule. And if you do apply it in the case of the Darabanan, then you have to say, wow, that's really taking this rule very seriously, taking Darabanan very seriously, right? And maybe even taking that concept of social makom very seriously. Right? The question to ask myself is not what type of mitzvah is this, how important is this mitzvah, could I come back to this later on? The question to ask yourself is, like, do I believe that what I'm doing right now has a real mitzvah for And if the answer is yes, okay, end of conversation, I'm not going to switch to doing this other thing. That's on the question of Dara versus Dara Um Let's talk now about all mitzvah are only certain ones. Which actually adds another thing to your list. Yeah. It's like the Ah, As you're okay. saying there, I'm thinking of Gavayim and everyone who, uh, you know, there. I'm happy to add that to the list, you but tell me a little bit more about that, because we will get to that eventually. I just as you're speaking, I'm uh, thinking of a Sikh you know, mm-hmm. you miss out on Zavim, you miss in Kriya Zadiv, whatever, you end up sometimes missing on a lot of things. We'll talk about the Sarfei Tibor. We will talk about this more next time and the time after, um, especially the last class. Osek Pitsarfei Tibor means you are involved in the needs of the congregation. Um, and it's used, you'll even see in some of the sources that I wrote later in the class, it's sometimes used, I don't want to say interchangeably, but I'll say in conjunction. It's often used in conjunction with Osek and Mitzvah Pitsarfei Tibor. There's, there's a sort of um, a way in which they're equated. Osek Mitzvah, if you're busy with the Mitzvah, you are exempt from the Mitzvah. And if you're Osek Pitsarfei Tibor, like the, the rabbi or the gabbai or someone who's like functioning. <laughs> so like I, you know, another accommodation for another time is how far you want to stretch this rule, right? The person who's like in the back of the shul talking about setting up kiddush, like they are arguably okay to start but they also arguably should be quieter in the room. So whatever, it's a question how far you want to stretch it, but okay, Osek Pitsarfei is someone who is maybe exempt from certain mitzvah, maybe because they fit into the Osefa mitzvah category, but it's like its own subcategory of Osefa mitzvah. And so we, we definitely will come back to that. Um, how about the question of applying to all mitzvot or only certain ones? Um, so again, I showed you Maimonides who could apply to this question or to the question of Zerorite versus Rebanan. Maimonides makes it sound. Rambam here in Hilfot Kriyachman, by the way, you always want to notice where Rambam is saying things, especially in this case, you'll see later on that Rambam is like not uh, not 100% consistent, shall we say, about the question of Osef and Mitzvah. If you're if you are deeply entrenched in the world of risk, then you will not like that statement at all. Um, but I promise to bring you people solutions to this problem uh, if you stick around for the last class. Uh, but here, at least, Maimonides, Rambam comes down very firmly um, in Hilfo Kriyashma that. If you're involved in a mitzvah, any mitzvah, and again, tiered as a mitzvah, or you have this sort of mitzvah um, burden on your heart, 
So then you're exempt from all other So it doesn't matter, it seems, it doesn't matter, none of these categories would matter, right? Like none of these categories would push Rob up to say that this rule doesn't apply. So even the question is not all there, even if it's a mitzvah which we'll only do right now, nonetheless, Rob would say you have to let it go because you're already involved in this mitzvah. Look at Sefer Hayashar, source number three on this list, um, which in some ways is like grounds for a whole other class. Um, Sefer Hayashar is uh, a book by Rabbeinu Tam, um, Rabbi Yaakov ben Meir. He's a French Tosafist. He's, so he's more, uh, more famously known for, for being a Tosafist, for writing or contributing to the Tosafot, right? The, it's one of the two commentaries on the page of the Gemara, the outside one. Um, but Rabbeinu Tam also has a book called Sefer Hayashar, and this is from his Chubo. Um, so on the matter of one who's involved in the mitzvah is meant for a mitzvah, he says, And so too, you're exempt from all positive time by mitzvah. Meaning, Rabbeinu Tam thinks that this rule applies in particular to a positive time-bound commandment. Who can give me an example of a positive time-bound commandment, just so we know what we're talking about? Davening is an interesting one. It may not be a positive time bound commandment because the question is at what point is it time bound? Mankriachma, which is not the same as Tzadza, is a positive time bound commandment. Right? That's something that's actually, you have to do it in the specific time by which you have to do it. Any other positive time bound commandments come to mind? Candlelighting is a is like a trick mitzvah because it's not clear that it's a mitzvah. Candy knows about this one, um, but yeah, but so no. So I'm not going to put that in that category because it's a little hard to find the commandment to light candles. What? Megillah. Megillah. Great. Reading Megillah is a positive time bound commandment. Um, so reading Megillah, Megillah is and pearl. So that's an example, um, and and it's. This sort of kicks off a larger conversation, but why would you apply this rule of Osekhamitsa Pachamitsa specifically to positive time bound commandments? Anyone have any thoughts about that? Because it's a weird, strange task, strange approach. But planning, you're engaged in the positive time bound commandment and you can't do the other? Um, well, played out for both Actually, since you raised the, since you raised the issue. Yeah, because it, I think it would make sense to, the other side is that you're doing something else and there's like a positive time-bound commandment that you're going to So that one works really well, right? Meaning it works really well to say, I'm doing this other mitzvah and a positive time-bound commandment comes my way, so I'm going to stop for the positive time-bound commandment, right? Or yeah. I'm involved in a positive time-bound commandment, I'm not going to, stop to do something that's not. Right? But what if you want to say the opposite? Right? That you wouldn't stop what you're doing, which is non-positive time cause, to do a positive time cause commandment. I understand your question. Right, what, what would be the rationale for saying that this specifically tells us that you shouldn't stop doing a positive time commandment to do a non-positive because this principle like trumps sort of like the fact that you would do this positive. 
Okay, so then we have to say that this principle trumps the fact that it's positive and high value. Really what this gets into is sort of a larger conversation. Again, you know, similar to all these dichotomies, but I'll tie it back into the issue of, you know, mitzvah bear versus not mitzvah bear, right? Something that is, you're not going to have the opportunity for later. Again, how are you setting your priorities, right? So it, like it makes sense to set a priority saying, well, I'm going to prioritize the ones that I'm not going to be able to do later on. Right? This actually, I feel like, now that I'm saying it out loud, sounds like very much the way that I operate in my to-do list, actually, right? Like, I would do first the things that I'm not going to be able to do later, and leave for later the things that you um, could do later. I actually, um, uh, when my husband was in rabbinical school, they had a workshop about setting priorities, so they made like a grid, and it was, um, the, it was important and urgent, important, non-urgent, urgent but not important, right? Like, you could fit things into that kind of grid. So the things that often get left for last are the things that are important, but not urgent. Because that's just a natural way that people prioritize. You know what's important, so you keep it on your to-do list, but you keep bumping it forward from day to day because it never never actually feels urgent to you. Um, this, you know, it doesn't happen in anyone else's life, that's fine, um, but I think it's a common way that people prioritize. So this rule of saying, right, arguably, that you, you can't do that, right? Even though you might not be able to get to it later on, you're still going to leave it behind. Um, you know, if if you're still going to apply this rule, I think it's almost like this is creating um, like a value of being fully like present in whatever yeah. that you're doing, like regardless of how important you would actually bring it. Yes, I don't even think almost. I think that if you apply this rule to its fullest, then it definitely is creating that feeling, and that's what I want to focus on. Next class is this issue of concentration, because, you know, I love your formulation, Hinda, and it, like, really, um, sort of really touching, if I think about a mitzvah, because when you talk, I imagine a mitzvah that demands that concentration. But I know if I'm being realistic, but I can also imagine a mitzvah that don't really demand that much concentration, or maybe I just never thought of a mitzvah that should demand that concentration. So that tension is what I want to focus on next class. Um, people struggle to explain, I was going to read you a quote from here, but it's fine. Um, people struggle to explain this question of um, basically where we're being time to even get this idea from. Um, actually, I will say just one quick thing about it, which is that um, sometimes you could imagine a situation where a mitzvah has both a mangrama and a non mangrama element. Okay, so there's both a time bound piece and a non-time-bound piece. The example, which comes from also something that we saw uh, in the last class, um, there's something called, I'll repeat the case briefly, um, there's something called Prudzidur of Yosef, it comes from the Gemara and Nizarim. Um, let's say you are, you, you find somebody's lost item. So, what's that mitzvah called when you find someone's lost item? What do you have to do with it? You have to return it. Call Hashavad away that. At the moment when you take their thing into your house, so let's say they're animals, um, so you're you're involved in that mitzvah of returning the person's lost item. For sure a mitzvah, and it even falls into which category on this list? By the way? Return to your Great. Great parsha. Uh, parsha Mishpatim, lots of good laws, like the parsha for Gemara learners. Um, so you have to return the lost item. So whatever long story short, Gemara talks about a case where while 
while you have the person who lost item in your hand, you're watching my lost donkey, a poor person comes to your door and knocks, and wants to get money. So technically speaking, maybe you could say, you don't have to give money, you're not going to like this, right? But you don't have to give them money, right? You are always like the mix, right? You're, you're taking care of their lost item, you don't have to give them money. So you, you sort of earned money, it's like a penny saved is a penny earned type of thing, right? You don't have to, um, you don't have to give money at that moment because you're always Okay, I think we're going to talk about that, whatever. Takes it in all sorts of interesting directions, but we shouldn't talk about it. But that's the case. So there is, the question there is, how do you think about that mitzvah to give to that? Is it a mitzvah over? Is it a mitzvah that should have been mind? Does it fit into any time-bound category? Or is it constant? Okay, so on the one hand, it's constant. Right? At that moment, it's kind of Right. It has both elements, and you could even further break it down. I didn't bring you to this, it seems a little bit like uh, like too much. Um, I want to make sure I'm on schedule because I was told at the class in here afterwards. Um, but uh, but there is even an element of a say versus low test that you have a constant, um, you have an obligation not to the statement in your hand, not to uh, withhold not to withhold uh, money from people, not to be cruel to people, um, right? That you can't, you can't not give to people who are in need. Um, and that's sort of constant. On the other hand, okay, on the other hand, um, that particular ani, that particular poor person is only there in that moment. So that part feels like a kind of right? And the question is, question is where you really have to give to the person, but that's a case where you have sort of both elements. And so you might actually, right, in some ways you're giving up on a mitzvah there, but just to show that things can fall into both categories simultaneously. Then there's also the question of um, what if what if one mitzvah is an assay and what and one mitzvah is a lota assay. Right? That I feel like we didn't even raise that possibility, we didn't even pick that up. Because if I said to you, you know, I'm busy with the mitzvah of you want to do right there? Okay, I'm busy with the mitzvah of Hashavat Aveda, and so I don't have to fulfill the mitzvah of not eating trace food. How does that proposition sound to you? Yeah, think that's going to fly? What? No. No. Right, I'm seeing like some, some skepticism, definitely. Right, so that's, again, I didn't bring you, uh, I didn't bring you the sources about that specifically, but that's another conversation, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that what um, Rebecca is saying? Yeah, I mean... Is limiting this principle to only positive commands? Yes, in other words, we would limit the principle to only positive commands. We would not apply this. I Meaning, instinctively, we would not apply this to low task now. And that's sort of, that's sort of like the baseline I mean, assumption. I don't want to get too far afield, but let's say you were, I don't know, responding to Hurricane Sandy, you were helping people, so you're involved in the that fish. And it so happened that wherever you were, you couldn't get kosher. Right. And you could, you could imagine someone making an argument that. Right. But then I think it's not because of Osek Bemitzvah, then I think it's because of people of Nefesh. In other words, this situation has a different set of laws uh, that come uh, in uh, Right? Uh, so. You, well, could, you could do all sorts of things in the people of Nefesh situation, but, I, but if you said to me, um, well, let's go back to my second situation. And if you said to me, like, I'm traveling, and so I can't keep kosher. 
I don't know, right? Meaning maybe, sure, we make certain accommodations. We might get back into the door, right? The door, but I don't think if something's really impossible, right? But I wouldn't say you're traveling with bar mitzvah, right? You're on your way, we'll take the example from the Gemara. You're on your way, you're know, you on your way to greet your teacher. Um, so eat a Big Mac along the way, right? Not, not, not feeling it. I'm not, instinctively, I'm not feeling it, right? Um, and I hope that that right, resonates with all of you in some way. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, because of this example that I just gave you, um, the Bar Chayes, who again I didn't quote, others actually talk about this idea that again there is a lotas there, right? When I talked about the non-time-bound element of giving sakah, right? In some way, that's always incumbent upon you to give sakah, right? So you you have an op- you have a negative commandment against oppressing the poor. You cannot oppress the poor. Um, so. If, you're, if it's really true that you don't have to give zakat to that guy because you're watching your neighbor's escaped goat, right? Then, then it, it would seem like you're actually like you are off the hook for the low says while you're doing this positive mitzvah. Most poskim though would say no, and you can't you can't apply it that way. And one distinction might be between um, a sheva al and a a positive element to a negative commandment. Right? Don't oppress the poor means there is something that you have to do in order to not oppress the poor, right? And therefore, maybe you don't have to do that, that positive element because you're busy taking care of another positive mitzvah, as opposed to the sheva al-pazza, the sort of pure don't do of, you know, don't eat tray food, right? So maybe that you can't then say, you know, I'm so busy doing this mitzvah that I think I'll go out and buy some pork, right? Because then you sort of introduce a positive element. It's okay if you didn't follow that one. Like I said, the sources were kind of involved and I didn't bring it. Um, but again, it raises this question of are we really going to apply this across the board? Almost no one would say that you should really apply this to a low tasset situation. Right? You're not going to be exempt from the result low tasset if you're busy with it. Let's go on. Um, okay, so we looked at Rabbi Nuzhan. Um Oh yeah, look at source number four because we saw this last time, but I don't want to miss it. Um, for this time as well. Um, we can think about it more. Um, this is the Shulchan Aruch and then the Ramah. Again, for those of you who like sort of bottom line sock, for those of you who like to know where does the decision making process go with this. Um, so the Shulchan Aruch says the writers of Tulin and Mizzot, them, their agents, their agents, agents, all those who are involved in God's work. Again, this phrase, right? Um, here it's Kohalaskim <coughs> Malachat Chemayim, which I just really like that phrase. Right, people who are involved in God's work, and they're exempt from putting on tefillin all day, except at the time of Shema and Tzila. So they're exempt, except at certain times when they're not. Right, the time when that obligation actually kicks in, it seems like they have to do it. But the Ramah then adds, right, Rav Moshe Israel, who's the Ashkenazi glass on the Shulchan Aruch, says, "Ima yutzrit kim la asot malach time b'sha'at kriyat Shema b'tzila, as b'tzirin yikriyat Shema b'tzila b'tzili." So chol ha'osak mitzvah patrim mitzvah acheret. Actually, the Ramah says, it totally, we totally apply this rule of Osek and Mitzvah So if you're busy with one mitzvah, if you have to do it right then, like if you could wait, okay, like, who said before, Shema is only like right now, in a few minutes, it's going to be past Sof's mind, it's going to be past the latest time that you can recite Shema. So if you can stop, great, you should stop. But in fact, the Ramah concedes, you are not obligated to stop doing one mitzvah to do another mitzvah. If doing the second mitzvah is going to cause you further 
again, uh, expenditure of effort, right? If it's going to burden you further, you don't have to. It's only if you can do them both effortlessly, and if one can do them as one without effort, then one should do both. So if you're like in the kind of job, and this, this description in Irma always reminds me of like um, being in Israel, like, and I mean, I guess people maybe, I don't know, people have sort of laid off tramping a little bit, laid off hitchhiking a little bit, but when I used to tramp from Efrat to, uh, to Jerusalem, so as I was standing at the trampiata, like, everyone was davening, right? And some people, it seemed like, would sort of continue davening, like, even as they got into cars. And there was one guy who used to tramp with me in the morning who was wearing his talus and filling and davening by the side of the road, just with one arm out, waiting to be picked up and taken to Jerusalem. Uh, so that's, right, so... Like it's even like I guess a subjective question like where you when you think you could do two things as one right I would not have thought that those two particular things could go together um, but the Ramah says if you can effortlessly you change do your mindset <laughs> not really um, but yeah, you're uh, not gonna take care of your kids and then it's challenging um, yeah, so I definitely I definitely <laughs> put it this way I definitely wouldn't put it into the category of doing them both without effort. Right, so maybe this is a little bit of a subjective question, and we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about the question of kavana, of focus, which I think is also a subjective category to some degree. Um, but the Ramah really does say only if you can do them both effortlessly, but if, one would, if the second one would require extra effort, then you don't add it in, and that seems like across the board. Um, right, across the board in terms of all other mitzvah. Now we'll ask another question that also came up. What if the second mitzvah opportunity is a greater mitzvah? And I'm going to put this, Julia, I actually think I'm going to put this in your category, right? Not the, not exactly the right to Darabana, but Torah versus not, because I almost feel like greater mitzvah is like a little bit of an instinctive thing, right? It's like just, just clear to you, right? As much as you know, you're not supposed to make distinctions between mitzvot, etc. true story, right? But at the same time, you feel like, no, one mitzvah opportunity is like, actually greater than the other. Um, so what if this greater mitzvah opportunity comes your way? Um, so on this point, I do have, you could, you could take this as halakalamah, that's a pretty late source. Um, the Mishnaburah, um, this is source number five on your sheets. Right? The Mishnaburah says, I feel You're exempt from starting the second mitzvah, even if the second mitzvah is coming your way is clearly a greater opportunity. Someone want to give me an example of what this might look like? Because we already said it's a little tricky to apply these greater versus lesser categories. But can you name something that feel, clearly feels greater versus less great? Instinctively for me, I'm thinking like if somebody was dominating and then some like opportunity came up to help like some it's like in my head like an old lady crossed the street but I'm not sure if that's really it. Okay, so I feel like you could also maybe even tie in the beta dumb thing here, but I you know sort of racking that a little bit. Yeah. Sure, but you're davening or you're doing something that feels like um, you know, this is important for me because it's something I do all the time, or maybe it's it's about a bear situation also. Right? And a very concrete opportunity to really help someone Right, in a clearly chesed-oriented way, um, comes that way. Okay, great. So the second opportunity feels more, feels more urgent, feels more important, feels somehow more like something that you should get involved in. Um, nonetheless, the mission bureau. Yes. Yeah. I just to say, nonetheless, the mission bureau says you should stick with the first one. And I want to talk about why, but I'll take your comment first. Oh, I was just give you another example. Okay, what's another example? 
let's say you're involved in looking for a lost object, and uh, uh, in your house, you can, I don't know. Right. And um, the phone rings, and the kid says it's Sava on the phone. Ah, interesting. So it's keep it up, keep it up, right? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so do I tell the kid, tell my kid, you know, tell, tell Sava I'll call him back? Uh, I'm busy looking for, right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example, and I, what I like about that is it also brings up the question more explicitly of, like, could you put off mitzvah number two, which is what we're going to talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. Like, right, because maybe, yeah, I'll call you back, right, I'll call you back. That's like a great, um, right, why choose? Maybe I could do mitzvah A right now and do mitzvah B later on, but I feel like what your example, Ron, calls to light is like, no, 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 right, maybe, maybe I don't get to play that game, right, maybe I have to do... I have to make the choice now. Like I don't get to say, okay, like I'll 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 fit both in somehow. Right? What's important is what I'm going to choose to do right this minute. Um, Could we say one more thing? So what if my father was not coming? He was you know, in the dining room asking for a drink of water. Yeah. Ah, uh, then you say so you couldn't. Put, well, you could still say I'll be there in a minute, right? I'll be. Can you wait five minutes? Can I delegate it to my children? You can delegate it, right? So that to me enters this next question that we're going to talk about, which is sort of, you know. If you can't, right, prioritizing, I'm going to say, means making that decision in the moment, what's more important right now. But maybe you get like a little wiggle room if you just sort of say, well, I'm doing this one right now, but don't worry, I'm going to take care of that equally well in five minutes. Yeah. Isn't that like the classic example of Torah where um, Abraham was dominant talking, talking to God, and then the angels come and he offers them food? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's the midrashic interpretation of what goes on there. Right, but yeah, I mean, so one thing that I, I didn't do for this class, um, but but you could really do is to go through. You could go through Tanakh. You could also go through the Gemara, and think of and, and see how this rule plays out. Right? Does it or does it not work? Right? So that's like a midrashic example. Um, there are all sorts of things about. Uh, I'm not even remembering the specific instances of of Kibbutz and situations with uh, with Yaakov and. Yosef. Like, there are, the Mepharshim try in all sorts of ways to plug this rule back into those examples and see if it works. And it's definitely an interesting thing. Right? So there maybe you'd have to say, okay, maybe Abraham leaving is supposed to teach us, you know, the great mitzvah of Hachnasad Rokim. Does that mean that we should also do it that way? Or does that mean that talking to God was just important but not actually a mitzvah? Or like, what, you know, which of these categories would you fit it into, right, would be the question. Um, yeah, but... So even that's like not so strange. Um, well, it's not so straightforward in the sense that I don't think anyone has written talk about, you know, if you're talking to God, should you stop to let guests in, right? So it like, doesn't have that sort of level of practical applicability. I think more often that midrash is used to just talk about elevating the value of Hachmasad or how importantly we're supposed to take the mitzvah of welcoming guests. But again, I think the same, I don't think you'd be able to learn from Abraham directly to this rule. In other words, the same question would still apply. You're about to welcome a guest to your house, and some other mitzvah opportunity comes calling. Or let's do it the other way. You're doing some other mitzvah, and the opportunity to welcome a guest comes about. So you would still be in an mitzvah situation, at least potentially. Right? You'd have to make an argument to not stop mitzvah A. Sorry, you'd have to make an argument for why you could stop mitzvah A to do mitzvah B that would somehow allow you to work around this principle. Yeah, so I think the question would remain the same. I want to also talk about the second part of the Mishnah Burroughs statement. Um, because you've already started to be involved in the first. 
which on, the, on one level he's just saying, okay, the rule of Osukumasa Pachamahimitsu has kicked in, right, it applies. But I think on another level, it's also a way of saying something about this rule, maybe again, this question of kabana or focus that we're going to talk about next time, right? You're already involved in Mitzvah 1, so on some level, you just, you can't, right? You can't stop and do Mitzvah number 2, even though he's comfortable calling Mitzvah option of number 2 greater. And this one, I think, you know, again, this, this is bottom line halakha, at least from the Mishnah Burroughs perspective. Um, nonetheless, I think it's worth thinking about. I think the way that we usually work around this is by, it, you know, sort of comes back to Ron's example, right? Like, the way in which we sometimes do this is mitzvah opportunity number two is so great that I can't possibly pass it up entirely. So even if I'm not going to switch to doing it right now, I'm going to find a way to work it in later. Right? And I mentioned last time, also, I think that there's a way in which this is expected of us, and I want to come back to this, really, especially in the next two classes. If someone calls you for a great mitzvah opportunity, right, and you would say to them, I'm sorry, like I can't, whatever. Right? You want me to volunteer for this project to help starving children in Jerusalem. Um, it sounds so incredible and meaningful, but I am really focused on the mitzvah of right now, so I can't possibly stop and take advantage of this opportunity. Right? Like you're calling me for a really good cause, but I can't because I'm really focused on this mitzvah. So I think just instinctively we would say like, that's a little crazy, right? Like, like deal with it, right? You do two things at once all the time, or you do two things like one after the other. So don't hang up the phone on me and tell me that you can't take advantage of my mitzvah opportunity just because, right? It sounds like very zen. In fact, I taught this class or a version of this class. Uh, once to like a, a very mixed audience, not everyone was Jewish, and um, people have very varied backgrounds. And one guy said to me, oh, this rule is totally Buddhist, which I don't really know anything about Buddhism, so I have to take his word for it. Um, but, but at the same time, like I thought about it, I was like, oh, like, I, I do hear that, right? Like, it's a very zen in a way to say, like, I'm so focused on this one mitzvah that I couldn't possibly do any of these other mitzvahs, even if they're more important. And there seems to be something a little bit... Um, alien to Judaism about it, right? Because if I called you up really and said, like, I have this amazing opportunity, if you just said I'm too busy, okay, like, there'd be all sorts of ways you could get out of it, right? But to say to me, oh, I'm really focused on mitzvah A, right? I'm so, I'm so totally immersed in this one mitzvah that I can't do your other mitzvah, there might be something a little bit fishy about that. Nonetheless, the Mishnah Burroughs stands. So we'll come back to that more when we talk about the question of Kamana. I think uh, yeah. it's coming up, but I also just see like a value on like when you're doing something, you're fully committed to that. Right. So, that, so I'm calling that kavanah in some way, in the broader sense. I mean, how to define kavanah is a really big question, anyway. And I guess I'm going to bring some sources on yeah. the subject next week. But, um, but kavanah in the sense of what might be called nowadays mindfulness, um, which is like this is like a fun game. If you Google, I guess. If you, you can Google books about multitasking, and then you can Google t- books about um, time management, but then the opposite of that is mindfulness. So, right, like, so some people, I guess the answer to time management, here's a different way to say this, the answer to time management, some people will say it's multitasking, and other people will say, no, 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 it's being fully present in the moment, it's mindfulness, it's being focused on one task at a time. The New York Times article that I passed out last week makes the argument um, that there is no such thing actually as multitasking. There's just sort of mm-hmm. switching quickly. And I taught this, uh, again, a version of this class um, in a shul last year, and a woman um, 
who's a neurologist, came up to me afterwards to take me to task for even suggesting that there was such a thing as multitasking. So, so I put that all sort of in one big category, focus, intention, mindfulness, being present in the moment, right? Something that means that you can't be doing something else at once. Okay, this next question I'm really, I want to really um, explore a little bit. Um, let's take this rule for a second, because we've seen that arguably it applies to, if not every case, it applies to many, many cases, right? There are very few times when you could say, no, 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 I'm not going to stop. I, I am going to stop mitzvah A from mitzvah B. Pretty much, you know, if you do both simultaneously, effortlessly, maybe some people would say this is a right to Darabon distinction. By and large, this rule applies. And so the question is, how are you going to relate to mitzvah number two? You're doing mitzvah number one, and mitzvah number two comes your way. So again, let me go back to your example. Do you say, okay, be there in five minutes, right? Like, I can't do mitzvah number two now because I'm involved in this mitzvah number one, but I'm totally going to do it five minutes from now. Um, or, or not, right? Does the, does the being present in that moment kind of preclude that? No, 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 I'm doing this thing now, so that means, like, I'm doing what I have to do. Again, I check that item off my to-do list of be involved in God's work. I'm not going to stress about doing the other thing later on. So if you look at verse number six, which I have to to the next page. Um, so here's the Ritva, um, 14th century um, commentary, where he gives Peter Shim, he gives kind of his perspective um, on the Gemara. Um, so this is on that Zafin Sukkah. Um, so he kind of frames the question um, in a similar way to the words of Ruah, right? Why would you need a verse to teach you, or why would you need a statement of Chazal to teach you that you can't do two things at once? This should be, right, he lived, I guess, before the age of the multitasking, right? Um, this should be obvious to you that you can't do two things at once. Just, you physically can't. Sometimes you just physically can't be in two places at once. So his answer, this is the part that I bolded, you can't leave a mitzvah and do another greater mitzvah, right? Even if you want to. Okay, so you make that calculation to yourself, even though maybe you weren't supposed to. When you say to yourself, mitzvah B is clearly more important than mitzvah A. Right? In those examples you were able to generate, mitzvah B is clearly more important than mitzvah A. Nonetheless, you're not allowed to do it. You might have thought this language of pator, okay? You're exempt from mitzvah number two. Exempt implies you don't have to do it. But what if you want to do it? What if you say, I am up to the challenge. I can do both of these at the same time, or I can do them in quick succession. The Rifa says this rule, is teaching you, can't do it. You're not allowed to do mitzvah number two. Why are you not allowed to do mitzvah number two? Once you're involved in mitzvah number one, mitzvah opportunity number two is actually not mitzvah opportunity number two. It is actually optional activity which you think is very important but does not actually fit into the mitzvah list so don't stop and do it. Right? Osek the mitzvah patrim in a mitzvah so I think we would almost rewrite it. Osek the mitzvah, you're doing a mitzvah this second opportunity that came to your attention is really just for shoot. 
Rishuddha, the Gemara's word for something optional. Rishut is really, in this context, the Gemara's word for something secular. It's the same as if I said, I was doing a mitzvah, and my friend called and was like, would you like to go to the mall right now? And you were like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Okay, it is, it is on that level, according to the Rifa. Mitzvah number two doesn't fall into a mitzvah category. Because it's optional to do it, right? You're, you're exempt from doing it, and therefore it doesn't even rate as a mitzvah at all. You can't prioritize it because it is sort of nowhere on the list of mitzvah priorities. Um, so that's what the Gemara is coming to teach us. Um, can't. Everyone agrees, right? Can you leave one mitzvah to do another mitzvah? That's a whole conversation. But everyone would agree that you can't leave a mitzvah to do something to do something for fun, to do something that's optional. You're shaking your head. Your last statement, you just said, I heard it correctly, you just said, it's one thing if you're leaving one mitzvah to do another mitzvah, but everyone would agree that you can't leave a mitzvah to do something optional, to do something good, right? Right. But Meaning everyone in the context of this group, right? Like no, 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 take that as a, as a baseline assumption. Right, but what Rebbe seems to be adding is that there's no such thing as leaving one mitzvah to do another mitzvah, because that right. second mitzvah doesn't Right, right, right. That the the, the is essentially transforming this rule. I agree. I accept that. Meaning, I was sort of saying outside the ritva, but I um, think that more internal to the ritva, I think you're right. Which raises the question to me of whether this is even a good interpretation of this rule, right? Because I think you're right that if you read, if you would sort of rewrite this rule according to the ritva, you'd have to, right? Like this this word then gets put in quotes. Right, something that you're once you're involved in a mitzvah, any other mitzvah act that would come your way, you have to relate to as a non-mitzvah. The test case for this, or um, I'll say one one way of testing this, is the question of again, what happens when you don't do mitzvah number two, or you know, again, in the Rifa's formulation, non-mitzvah number two, right? But I've just been colloquially calling the mitzvah and mitzvah well, B, so. I'll keep that, right? And the rule and says that's the question uh, why they phrase it. Exactly. Like that's what I was saying. As Riffo, to me, is a very, it's a very radical rereading. But I think he would say, no, no, no. Like, it is a mitzvah, objectively. But in your subjective right. experience, it is not currently a mitzvah. Okay, so in the world of mitzvah A and mitzvah B, a, again, a way of testing this is how do we treat mitzvah B? And for this, you need a little bit of context for the specific test case that I gave you. Sometimes, when you miss a mitzvah opportunity, that's something that you had to do in a particular time context, sometimes we let you um, have a do-over or a make-up. I literally didn't know how to translate this word into English other than by saying, like, a make-up opportunity. So if, for example, you missed davening, so, and you were obligated to daven by a certain time, so what's the halakha about that? Anyone know what happens if, let's say, you miss shakri? Right. So there's a concept of tashlamin. Um, you kind of do it twice. Um, you do it over. Um, so you have that first um, dominant opportunity, you miss that one. So yeah, you miss up, but you could say Shimon Esri twice at Mincha. It's called tashlamin, again, which I didn't, I didn't have a good, uh, a great English word for it, so I translated it as like make-up prayers, so you're welcome to suggest better, um, better English translations than that. Um, 
Anyway, so that is sort of like a, a test, or it's a way of thinking it's about... Tashlumin? Tashlumin. Yes. Um, so it's like payback, right? Um, but in the good sense. So it's a way of testing how we think about the other mitzvah. For some reason, you were exempt from the mitzvah, or you couldn't do the mitzvah. We'll talk about that way. You were exempt, you couldn't do. But you couldn't do the mitzvah of davening in its proper time. So by saying, okay, you make it up later, it's like a way of saying, you should have done it then. You didn't do it then. So we're going to let you make up for it. So what about a case of osek the mitzvah, pastor the mitzvah? That mitzvah B that passed you by, because let's say you stuck to the rule, right? You did mitzvah A. Your father called you. Your kid says, stop is on the phone. You say, no, 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 I can't talk right now. Okay, I won't even put in the call you back later because that's our question. Right? You say, no, 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 I can't talk right now. I'm doing mitzvah A. So how do you then relate to mitzvah B later on? Right? That second mitzvah opportunity is still probably, right, unless you have like sort of a, a very zen approach, right? Unless you sort of fully <laughs> embraced the concept of mindfulness, right, and you sort of blocked everything else out, it's probably in some way on your mind that you didn't do mitzvah opportunity number two. So here's a very specific test case. This is an excerpt from the Torah. Um, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, it's the first, arguably the first major law code, the Shulchan Aruch, based off of the Torah, um, structured like the Torah. Um, so the Torah is talking about the laws of an onen. An onen is someone who, um, someone, God forbid, a relative has died, and they haven't yet buried that person, the funeral hasn't taken place, so you're in like a kind of in-between state. You're, it's like being a mourner, only you're not yet even in mourner, even a mourner, because you're still potentially involved in the needs of the dead person because you have to take care of the funeral, etc. Um, so classically speaking, an onen is exempt from mitzvot. Um, so the Torah talks about this, one whose dead is laid out before him, or even if the dead is not before him or her and it's incumbent on that person to bury the dead. So that person can't eat meat or drink wine, can't have simcha in the classical sense, can't have happiness, or recite hamotzi, the blessing over bread, or grace after meals, even if one eats with others who are blessing, one should not say amen. It's a really weird situation, if you can imagine, to be in, if for someone who's used to saying blessings to suddenly not be saying blessings uh, and not even say amen. And one is exempt from all the mitzvot in the Torah, and even if one does not have to be involved in the needs of the dead, such as in a case where there are others who are involved with this for that person, and even if a person wants to be strict upon oneself and bless or answer those who bless, one is not permitted. I think it's an interesting kind of echo of the Ritva's terminology, right? It's a different, slightly different situation, arguably, or maybe not. Um, you're an onen. The Torah specifies it might be that there's nothing actually occupying your time. Like maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe you have to make the funeral arrangements, or maybe there's someone else to take care of that. Either way, though, you're in this state of aninut. And so even if you want to, even if you say, I'll be fine, I can totally daven, make brachot, etc., you're not allowed to, okay? Um, and this is similar to one who forgot and did not recite the evening prayer, who says Shafri twice, because since at night, that person was not obligated to pray. Hey, I skipped a little bit of context there, but, um, sorry, right, it's not similar to someone who forgot, because you, one is about, or in one case, if you just forgot to say Maris, let's say, you would say Shafri twice, you could do Tashamim. But the Torah says, in this case of an Onen, you were exempt, like completely exempt meaning we're going to go again with this language of the Ritva. Mitzvah number two was not even mitzvah number two. Your whole reality is altered, such that what we would normally call an obligation, a mitzvah, incumbent upon you, etc., it's like it didn't exist for you at all. 
In the language of Hilchot Shabbat, we might call this Duchuya versus Hutra. That ties into this issue. Right? Is it the case that mitzvah number two, okay, you couldn't do it right in that moment, but you're totally going to get to it as soon as you possibly can? Or is it the case that mitzvah number two is like, it's not even a thing in your life? Okay, what the Torah is saying about Aninut is that mitzvah number one, the primary thing you're involved in is, is again, waiting for the arrangements to be made, waiting for the funeral. And so mitzvah number two, it's like it doesn't even exist for you. So later on, when you have the, we'll call it time, we'll call it mental space, Right? You're free of this exemption, right? The, the Aninut state has been lifted. Nonetheless, you're not obligated to do Tashlamin. You're not obligated to go back and make up that mitzvah opportunity that you missed because it wasn't even a mitzvah for you. And the question is, how would Osek the mitzvah, right? is Onen a case of Osek the mitzvah? How would it play out in this case? Um, so I brought you the Drisha, which is one of the um, commentaries on the Torah, um, Rabbi Yoshua Falk. Um, and he says, uh, he specifically brings in this question. Um, let's see, which proverbs do we want to do? Lodami l'shachach. Okay, so he's commenting on this idea that it's not the same as forgetting. Um, it's not the same as forgetting to pray. At the time of prayer, they're exempt from praying, because at the time of being involved, they were exempt from prayer, as in mourning. For what difference does it make if they're exempt because they're forced by mourning, or they're involved with the mitzvah? In other words, the Drisha is saying, the Onan category is clearly an Osek B'mitzvah category. It doesn't matter. For some reason, and in this case we'll say the reason is Osek B'mitzvah, we'll shift back to that focus, you're involved with the mitzvah and so you can't stop and pray right now. And at that point, it's an exemption. And in my opinion, all the more so that at the time when one is involved with the needs of, congrega- of the congregation, okay, that's Osek B'mitzvah, which is using as an Osek B'mitzvah case, and so too if one is doing the work of God. Okay, so for sure, if you are, again, we have this phrase, doing the work of God, osek the mitzvah, you're involved in a mitzvah, you are exempt from mitzvah number two, so much so that later on, you don't have to say, okay, like, mitzvah number one is the one I was doing, I bumped mitzvah number two to next on my list. There was no mitzvah number two. You didn't bump it to later on your list, you just don't have to go back and do it. Because that obligation, it's like it was never hal on you, you never had that obligation to do mitzvah number two. That's what the Drisha would say. He says it about Aminut, and he says it even the more so about someone who's Osek the Mitzvah. The Taz, yet another commentary on the Torah, um, strongly disagrees. Um, strongly, strongly disagrees. The Tame'ani, I'm shocked. In Yatsu's very in Elamitif. Like, I can't even believe that the Drisha, the Torah, etc., that they said this. Um, and here he makes a distinction. Anyone who's forced is considered exempt from prayer. Okay, so he's going to make a distinction between what he calls ones, I'm not going to read all this inside, what he calls an ones, someone who like really can't do mitzvah number two. Mitzvah number two is prayer in this case. And the reason you can't do it, it's so interesting what he describes, you're preoccupied with an official because of a debt, and you can't get away without losing money. This to me is such an interesting case, and like to translate it into modern terms, I feel like you're like, I don't know, you're online at the bank, you're with your mortgage officer, right? Somehow there's something you're doing right now. It's like a business transaction. It involves a debt, and like the person you're with is not going to be okay with it if you say, I just need to step out for five minutes to die. That's not going to work clearly in this case. And so during the time when you're with this guy, the time for davening passes. 
So he says that person is considered forced. And so afterwards you pray twice. <coughs> okay, that's a Hashem situation. And he says you can't, you can't kind of distinguish, you can't say that this is so different. Um, you, have to, you have to make up afterwards what you didn't do. Um, and he's not comfortable with the language of um, how much more so, even more so, that someone who's osek b'mitzvah, pachem b'mitzvah, that means they wouldn't have to go back to it afterwards. Okay, maybe you couldn't do it now, but he's sort of ridiculous to say that that was just sort of like in the moment you couldn't do it. It's not that you were in an exempt category. It's that you were forced to not be able to do the mitzvah at that moment. But later on, you should for sure come back to it. Which I think is, you know, maybe not the more prevalent way of understanding, let's say, aninut, but I think it is a more instinctive reaction to this. Right? mitzvah. So, like, I understand, like, kind of, you know, in in concert with what Hinda said, right? Like, okay, like, I can't do that second mitzvah right now because I'm fully present in the moment. But that doesn't mean that in five minutes I shouldn't do it, right? That doesn't mean that I should consider it, like, sort of not incumbent upon me at all. And that's basically what the Taz is arguing. Um, and and that question, so we, we don't, um, it seems that we don't fully hold, like, the Ritva. In other words, like, the idea that mitzvah number two is, like, it never existed, um, it never applied, you don't have to go back to it at all. So that's not generally brought down um, in the sources. It's not generally put in um, in a fully practical way. Um, nonetheless, there is this idea that maybe maybe not in every case, we don't always have the idea of Tashlamin in every case. In Aminut, it seems that we don't. Um, and so there is a way in which being exempt, maybe in certain sort of situations, being exempt in that moment means you need to let that second opportunity go. Sure, it's great. Sure, it's important. In some context, it's obligatory upon you, but maybe not in this context. And that's also an idea that I want us to work with more when we talk about Kavanah. And, and also want to think about it in the last class in this series, we're going to talk specifically about the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, of studying Torah, and how Otek mitzvah, mitzvah does or does not apply to that mitzvah. Right, if the mitzvah you're involved in is learning Torah, how it does or doesn't apply. Um, and it ties into the idea of Torah Fetzibur. Also, the, um, the last um, source that I brought you here is sort of a teaser for that class um, from the Shulchan Aruch, Ha'osek B'Torah Fetzibur, Ka'osek B'Torah Dami. Someone who's involved in the needs of the congregation is like someone who is involved with Torah. Okay? Um, and there are those who say that that means that they don't have to stop to pray. So the question is, like, A equals B, B equals C, like, how far are we going with this math? Okay? If Tzarek Tzibor is, like, someone who's learning Torah, is someone who's learning Torah an Ozek mitzvah, such that they're pater from all other mitzvot. I mentioned last class, Talmud Torah is a particularly interesting test case because, in terms of the question of when obligations kick in, one who is obligated in learning Torah is obligated all the time. It's a constant, it's according to many interpretations, it is a constant... Uh, obligation. You're never not obligated in learning Torah. And as to-do list items go, it's a very hard one to check off your list. Right? You can't ever really say, done, I have learned Torah. Thank goodness. (laughs) Some of that one. Right? Um, It doesn't work that way. Um, And so that's a very interesting test case. 